Hello, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter, but I also have firsthand experience with the American healthcare system because about five years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. But I'm still here today, even though I have been through our uh, hospital and medical and billing system and our insurance system and dealing with big pharma and prescription drugs. And so we have experts here every week to answer your questions and help you navigate American healthcare. And our first question today is from Kim, who says that my health insurance claims that they don't cover compounded drugs. My doctor appealed and they said the contract with my spouse's employer excludes it and there is no one else to appeal to. I'm in Minnesota. Is this true? Now, uh, without knowing your exact uh, insurance um, situation, we can't answer that directly, but compounded drugs are custom made for a patient and thus are not a commercially available drug approved by the FDA. So they're not typically listed in insurance drug formularies and coverage varies. It sounds like you have private group insurance through your spouse's employer. So it's difficult to say if the insurance company is allowed to exclude it in this case. There is some guidance under the Affordable Care Act to prevent insurance companies from devising their drug formularies and exclusions in a way that unfairly impacts consumers with specific conditions, but your health insurance would likely not be subject to that. Regardless, they're wrong that you have no one else to appeal to. Minnesota has an external appeals process where Minnesota's Commerce Department will work with a third party to determine if the denial was justified. So you may want to look into that at mn.gov and look for the Commerce Department's information on how to. Our next question is from Rebecca, who says that I'm very grateful for the Affordable Care Act. I probably wouldn't be here without it. A big concern is the cost of dental care. It's out of control. And uh, to help Rebecca, here is Alika Gurel from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, Access to affordable dental care is a huge, huge problem in in the United States, Um, even for folks who have good dental insurance. Um, Many dental plans have a maximum that they will pay in a given year that may not come close to covering the cost of dental uh, care that you need and um, certain services, particularly those uh, that are considered cosmetic, um, may not even be covered at all under most dental. Um, that said, if you, you know, particularly if you don't have any dental insurance right now, um, or if you're having trouble affording the dental care you need, um, two options that you can explore are um, looking into getting care from either a dental school or a sliding scale dental clinic. Um, And if you're interested in looking into either of those options, two places to look um, are, firstly, the American Dental Association has a list of accredited dental schools on their website, which is ada.org. And you can also find a list of sliding scale clinics um, at needymeds.org slash dental dash clinics. So those are two places that you can look if if you're not able to uh, access the dental care that you need. Thanks, Alika. And we'll hopefully be adding those uh, shortly to our website, which is act.tv slash care talk, which has all kinds of resources for you. And please keep calling or emailing or texting in your questions so that we can answer them in future episodes. 
Our next question is from Frank uh, in Hudson County, New Jersey, who has Horizon and Medicaid and uh, fibromyalgia, uh, has had surgery on his foot and uh, neuropathy, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and sciatica, and not not one pain management takes uh, my insurance. I'm bedridden most of the time and still suffering uh, and wish I could sue someone. They should accept all insurance. Uh, if anyone knows where I can go and yes, I've called both insurances uh, for help. So, uh, this Frank wants, uh, help, uh, and without knowing much more, we can't give you too much information, but have you tried Horizon's care management program? If you go to horizon, uh, njhealth.com uh, and look around for care management, you can see what uh, they offer. And they also offer an appeals process. So uh, you may want to look into that. And also uh, there, there may be a low cost um, uh, prescription options uh, for you, uh, since, uh, it sounds like you're not able to get coverage through your insurer for pain meds. Our next question is from Rachel, uh, who asks, why isn't the Affordable Care Act covering those who are disabled and make less than $100 a month? The Affordable Care Act for health insurance should be available for everyone, including people with disabilities who make less than $100 a month. Not everyone can afford the Affordable Care Act health insurance. Alika, do you have some thoughts? You're muted, Alika. (laughs) There we go. Um, taking this in a couple of different steps here, I think, you know, when we think about insurance options that were made available uh, through the Affordable Care Act, there are two main programs we talk about. The first is um, ACA marketplace insurance, sometimes known as Obamacare. Um, that, and these are private insurance plans that are offered through a state or a federal exchange like healthcare.gov or Covered California um, that uh, are available, uh, you know, at a subsidized cost depending on your income. Uh, and the second uh, program that we think about is uh, the Medicaid expansion. Many states um, already had uh, some coverage available based on um, for, for lower income folks uh, available through their Medicaid programs. And as part of the ACA, many states expanded those programs to cover many more people than before. Um, so just to, to uh, address your question, um, you know, in Firstly, to, to think about coverage based on uh, disability and then coverage based on, um, you know, I will say that there are, you know, there are several programs that, you know, might qualify you for low cost coverage. Um, for example, supplemental security income or uh, social security disability income. If you qualify for either of those programs, um, there are sometimes low cost coverage options ava- or free coverage options available to you. But it's going to depend a little bit on which state you're in, which program you're in, how long you're receiving benefits. Um, So if you haven't applied uh, to see if you're eligible for either SSI or SSDI, that would be a good place to start. That said, in most states, um, regardless of disability, at the income level that you're mentioning, you would be eligible for free or low-cost coverage through Medicaid just based on income. Um, Unfortunately, most there are about, uh, I believe, 14 states that have not, that chose not to expand their Medicaid programs under uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, So in those states, you can actually make too little uh, to qualify for uh, a subsidized plan on the Affordable Care Act marketplace, um, but too much to qualify for Medicaid, or you you might not be able to qualify for Medicaid at at, uh, any income. And that's a situation called the Medicaid gap. 
Um, so again, without knowing what state you're in and um, what your situation is, it's hard to say more than that. But if you haven't applied for Medicaid, um, that is always a good thing to do. And you can do that through um, healthcare.gov. You can do that through your state Medicaid office. Um, you can find a trusted local assister who might be able to help you with that as well. Thanks, Alika. And uh, just to let everyone know, uh, as of now, there are 12 states that haven't expanded Medicaid. And those states are Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. Uh, some of those states, uh, it's being talked about, but it hasn't happened yet. And so if you live in one of those states, you, could, you should contact your state legislators today, your state representative and your state senator and your governor, and make sure they know how important it is that they expand Medicaid and make healthcare more affordable for low-income people in your state. Our next question is from Sandy, who wants to know, is the Inflation Reduction Act, the new bill that Congress uh, just uh, finished and uh, President Biden signed, is that bill going to lower the cost of Blue Cross supplemental health insurance? Uh, and the answer, unfortunately, is no. Uh, the next question is from Paula, who wants to know, when will the $2,000 cap for Medicare out-of-pocket prescription drugs go, to in, go into effect? And this is a part of the bill we just mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act that was just signed. Uh, so the $2,000 cap for Medicare uh, prescription drugs is 2025. Beginning in 2024, if you reach catastrophic spending levels, you will no longer have a 5% copay. Uh, and so that's uh, if you spend uh, $7,050 on covered drugs out of pocket. So those are the questions uh, we have for you today. And next, uh, I'm pleased to bring in our special guest for today, Dr. Chidi Wamo uh, from Doctors for America, mm -hmm. who's going to be talking about racial, racial disparities in healthcare and what we can do about it for a more equitable healthcare system and an equitable America. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good evening. Thanks. Yes. And, um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my thoughts, but I wanted to first just speak to the audience and let everybody know um, that racial disparities um, is a very important topic. And I wanna validate anyone who's felt stigmatized or been on the opposite end of any racism within the medical profession. I know that it exists you know, broadly in the country. So I just wanted to validate that experience that a lot of people might have had. Um, so with that being said, I wanted to just briefly describe a few terms um, when we talk about racial disparities, particularly in health. Um, so health disparities are preventable differences in the burden of disease, injury, violence, or opportunities to achieve optimal health that are experienced by socially disadvantaged populations. And um, this particular language came from John, Johns Hopkins uh, University, but a lot of institutions, hospitals, um, colleges, degree granting programs are looking at uh, this issue. So that's really what health disparities are. So for example, when we think about colon cancer, um, the incidence, uh, which is how often it occurs, is higher in African-American populations, particularly male population, African-American male population. And those that are inflicted 
with the disease of colon cancer are diagnosed at a younger age and at a later stage, um, which hampers the ability of treatment uh, to be effective. So as a result, there's an increased uh, mortality rate in that population. Now, when we talk about health equity, health equity is a step forward from health disparities. And it's really looking at more upstream factors or factors that occur prior to uh, what we can see. And health equity means when every person has the opportunity to attain his or her full health, potential, full health potential, and that no one is disadvantaged from achieving this potential because of social position or other socially determined circumstances. So when we now talk about health equity, we're really looking at policies, uh, neighborhoods, food insecurity, housing, all of those determinants of health that drive health disparities. So you could think of health disparities as the result of a lack of health equity. And another example of health disparities could be substance use, particularly in Native American populations, um, where we see people really struggling, uh, particularly with alcohol use um, in that population. So that I just wanted to discuss those two terms just to give everybody a little bit of uh, information. Background. And I also wanted to take this time to uh, relay a little bit of my own personal journey, uh, my own family history, when it as it relates to racial disparities in healthcare, just to illustrate some of the topics that I just mentioned and to give a real world context for what we're talking about. Um, so I was born in the U.S. My father is Nigerian. He immigrated to the United States uh, from Nigeria in the late '80s after a civil war there. And my mother is an African-American woman from Philadelphia. And essentially, um, I was born and raised in Connecticut. And growing up, I think that provided me a unique lens of how to view the world um, and also our country. Um, so unfortunately, as I was growing up around, I would say fifth grade or so, my father was diagnosed with colon cancer, um, which was in a, a later stage. So at the time of diagnosis, uh, his surgeons basically said, you really need to have surgery. This is a late stage and you're actually gonna need chemotherapy. Um, so he actually, actually did two rounds of chemotherapy and did have two surgeries to remove the colon cancer. But unfortunately it had spread a little bit in his body. So as we talk about racial disparities and I already mentioned that uh, African-American men have a higher incidence of colon cancer. This is just a reflection of that. And his disease was later stage um, and he was young, he was in his 40s. Usually we would see colon cancer um, arise in people 60 and above. Um, so his situation as an immigrant and not necessarily being able to navigate the health system, I'm sure had a lot to play in it. Um, but that's just an example of uh, the consequences that we can see for um, culturally competent care that does not exist and that other hurdles that people have to jump through. Thankfully, my father was able to pull through. He's alive today and well, but that happy ending does not always occur with every um, And to progress further into the years with me personally, knowing that I have this family history of uh, colon cancer, particularly at a young age, it was it's essential for me to undergo colonoscopies, which is a procedure that is done to detect colon cancer uh, earlier than say, someone that, that does not have a family, family history. Um, should have it. So I'm now 31. And when I turned 30, 
I went to my general um, doctor to get a referral to see a gastroenterologist, which is the GI doctor who does the colonoscopy. And that was a hurdle I had to jump across. I'm a physician. And just to get the appointment set up and get that referral was challenging. And once I did see that GI doctor, they were saying, based on my uh, family history, yes, I need to be screened earlier, but it didn't need to happen until about 35 or 40. Thankfully, I advocated and said, I'm not comfortable with that. I knew some of the information about the racial disparities in healthcare. Um, so I was able to get my colonoscopy performed. Um, and thankfully, or it was thankfully, but it was alarming that they did find three polyps, which were the precancerous type that could have progressed the colon. So if I did not have that wherewithal or knowledge about what was available, the resources that were available, I very well could have ended up just like my father um, with a severe uh, stage of colon cancer that was life-threatening. And I just wanted to share those, uh, those two stories to illustrate the impact um, that racial disparities can have. Um, and as a doctor myself, um, who knows the healthcare system and still had issues navigating the system, um, I can em empathize and we know what other Americans go through who are not in the healthcare uh, workforce have to struggle with. Um, so I wanted to share that as an example to illustrate uh, the racial disparities. I also wanted to shift the conversation as well to what can we do about it? We know racial disparities exist um, in the United States across multiple fields in healthcare, whether it's cardiology, psychiatry, mental health, um, kidney disease, heart disease, diabetes. We know these exist, but what can we as individuals and as society do? So the burden should not always be on the individual, but unfortunately in our country, there are, time gonna, there are gonna be times when individuals have to advocate for themselves or their loved ones or their friends um, to get the quality of care that they need. And one of the best ways that we can advocate for um, equitable healthcare is by voting. Voting is a miss, uh, is, is, a oft, is, a, is an act that we don't think about has impact on health. But when we look at policies that influence where people live, what they can do, what they eat, what they breathe in on a daily basis, how much medications are, what types of insurance are available. These are all driven by policies and individuals have the power to vote. And who we put in office um, has a direct effect on the health that we have. And especially when we think of racial disparities in communities that are marginalized, that's very important. Um, so that would be my number one that I want uh, people to take away is to take action understand who you're voting for in local and national elections. That's from the governor to uh, the state center and also the president. Secondly, I would like to encourage people to seek second opinion. If, they, if you have a negative experience with a physician, that can be very um, uncomfortable. It can be very saddening or disheartening, but seek, give yourself the opportunity to seek another opinion by another health professional. And hopefully that will be more um, of a nurturing relationship that can lead to the care that you need. And also advocating for um, your loved ones and friends. There's a lot of organizations that you can tap, tap into in your state um, and region that can assist you with navigating the health system, such as this podcast, 
but also organizations on the ground level that connect can connect you with advocates that can uh, help speak on your behalf and um, grant you the care that you deserve. And I do want to touch on what we can do from a systemic standpoint, and that is there is a push to uh, diversify the workforce, the healthcare workforce, and also have those working in healthcare be more culturally competent. But we also need to really look at the context in which people play, work, and live. And physicians need to really start collaborating with other um, disciplines, such as lawyers, advocates, um, so that we don't all operate in silos. So this issue is going to need to um, take, it's going to require some ingenuity, some creativity, and we all have to really work together um, to address this. And think, um, think of health as a political issue. Um, as my training progresses, that's really what has stuck with me, is that healthcare is really a political issue, and it's determined by the policies that are enacted. Thank you. Uh, and I just wanted to hone in on something you said about the power of voting. Uh, yeah. And earlier when I answered um, a viewer's question, uh, they may or may not be able to get uh, Medicaid to be able to get a health insurance they can afford in their state. And that yeah. is very much based on who is in their state legislature and who is their governor. And so that's why it's so critical to, uh, as it comes to November, is take a look at everybody that's running and take a look at where they stand on healthcare issues, like ex expanding coverage, like making sure that you and your family can get affordable healthcare. So figure out where they stand on the issues and vote accordingly, because uh, this issue with uh, Medicaid and not being able to get healthcare is not new. This is something that has been going on for nearly a decade now. The Affordable Care Act was passed over a decade ago, and it started being implemented in 2014. So uh, for many years, these 12 states have had the opportunity to expand health care to the, some of their neediest citizens, and they refused to do it. And that's because of who is in power. Yes, and that's a great point. And unfortunately, those who would benefit most from the Medicaid expansion often are racial minorities and also um, just general uh, peoples that may be disadvantaged in social economic fears, but also just the general American uh, citizen. Med healthcare is, is expensive. It's not cheap to pick up medications and it's hard to navigate the system. So it's really an issue for him. And I have another question for you, which is uh, how do you find a culturally competent doctor? If you feel like your doctor is not listening to you, uh, is, is not sympathetic to your specific concerns based on your own history, how do you find a better one? That's a great question. And I think the best way is to find um, other family friends who have had positive experiences with a physician. So it's a, if it's a family, benefit, family medicine physician, to find those that have had a positive interaction where they feel supported, where they feel heard. And a red flag is when a physician just comes in the room, um, looking at the clock, just trying to prescribe medications and not really taking into account where you live, where you've come from, who you are as a person. That can clue you into the care um, that you're going to receive. It's a sad reality that we have to think along these lines, but it is it is reality. Um, so I would say reaching out and finding people who have had uh, positive experiences and also looking at organizations that can connect 
um, those with care uh, that is provided by sometimes those that look like that. Absolutely. And is there anything that Congress uh, and or the White House could be doing to make uh, health care more equitable and fairer in America? Yes. The, Congress, um, politicians can really take a serious look at the laws that they're enacting and really involve physicians in their policy decision making. Um, in addition to that, I think another um, possibility would, to, would be to expand uh, programs that facilitate diverse trainees in the healthcare professions, um, providing really for medical, um, medical debt. Um, and expanding those initiatives that are really going to train diverse personnel. But aside from cultural competency and diversifying the healthcare workforce, um, going back to the point of healthcare being a political issue is really taking and involving the necessary stakeholders in their policies. Great. And hopefully Congress uh, will uh, do something on this. Uh, and uh, especially in your states, uh, you may find that you get more of a response when you're contacting your state legislators as yeah. opposed to contacting your congressperson and asking them to move legislation. Uh, is there anything exciting out there that you see as opportunities uh, that, um, you know, maybe something that's happening in a state or on a local level that you think should be expanded? Yes, actually, um, I am currently a psychiatry fellow at Boston Children's, which is one of the teaching hospitals for Harvard Medical. And what uh, the hospital is doing is really, one, bringing on more, and I'm going to speak mainly with mental health, bringing on more psychiatry staff, uh, but really analyzing the need of where, analyzing the need of what people are requiring um, with when in a mental health crisis. So that's bolstering supports not only for inpatient hospitalizations, but also for programs in the outpatient setting and looking at where the data is showing where these health, these racial disparities are existing. Um, and that's in addition to looking at the uh, Department of Children and Families, which handles a lot of children in foster care. And that's also looking at um, involvement with schools, placing psychiatrists in schools, social workers, because um, I know that is where a lot of children, unfortunately, get the can get a lot of the care that they need since they are, do have to go to school. So bringing the clinic. Into well, thank you very much for joining us for today's Care Talk. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Please keep calling or texting in your questions and we'll answer them in future shows. Uh, we are on break next week for Labor Day, but we will be back the Monday after. Uh, thanks again for listening. This is Care Talk.